You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode has mention of uncomfortable topics such as sexual assault, rape, and violence. Some parts may be graphic and difficult to take in. I'll do my best to convey the details of this case with as much care as possible. I advise that you all take care while listening. Please consider this a trigger warning. Guilty. Those were the words echoed through the minds of Corey Wise and Kevin Richardson. These two young men had just been found guilty of horrible crimes. And a little over a month prior, Yusuf Salam, Raymond Santana, and Antron McRae had also been found guilty. They were facing five to 10 years each of incarceration. To recap, the five were all headed to prison after trying and failing to prove their innocence. The media played an active role in misrepresenting them. Donald Trump even had something to say. The reality of their circumstance had become all too real. They were about to enter a world unlike anything they had experienced before. But there is one person that we're missing, someone who often goes undiscussed. Not technically a part of the five because he didn't get a day in court. Steven Lopez decided to take the plea deal. Remember, they were all offered a plea deal, but Steve was the one that decided to take it. He believed that the odds were stacked against him, and he wanted to do the least amount of time possible. He pled guilty to the robbery, and as a result, he was given less time. He was 15 years old when he was sentenced to four years in prison. At the sentencing for Kevin and Corey, Kevin's new lawyer, C. Vernon Mason, argued that he had ineffective assistance of counsel. The family felt his previous representation was not 100% focused on the case and was too wrapped up in the media frenzy. Corey's lawyer argued about the inconsistencies in his client's statements. The boys and their families maintained that they were innocent. Either way, Judge Galligan denied both of them any grace. The judge showed no compassion. If anything, he had harsh words for them. Some of the last words they would hear in the outside world before settling into prison. Kevin was sentenced to a maximum of five to 10 years in prison. He also had the attempted murder charge attached to his name. Like with the others, he would start out at juvenile facility before being transferred. But because Corey was 16 and he wasn't eligible for a juvenile facility, he would start and finish his time in the adult prison. When he left the courtroom, he would return to a different kind of nightmare. His time would be 5 to 15 years in prison. Corey screamed racism on the way out of the courtroom after hearing the news. And he wasn't wrong. The streets were crazy, but this environment in prison was truly a reflection of just how wrong things could go. There were periods of time when the boys were in the same facilities for the same time. Kevin remembers he and Yusuf leaning on each other for support when possible. Yusuf, in his memoir, recalls playing basketball and the other boys being so aggressive with him that they would pull his shoulder out of place. This wouldn't be the first or the last time, and after a while he learned to push through the pain and pop it back in himself. Unless you've been to prison, the TV shows and movies don't always show the full gravity of what happens there. The juvenile facilities were not bad, but that's not saying much when the bar is already in hell. They say your brain is fully developed at 25. The violence these young men endured no doubt left a permanent impression on their minds. They constantly were on guard and in many cases witnessed and were victims of violence. 
even sometimes having to defend themselves with violence, a necessary fact that they were not proud of. Antron's mother hardly missed a chance to visit. No matter where he was, no matter the weather, she was going to see her son. Antron's relationship with his father remained strained. Antron felt betrayed, and his father knew he had let his son down. Yusuf leaned on the community that already existed within the prison walls. The other Muslim men in the prison, they all looked out for each other, and Yusuf was among the bunch. He quickly saw brotherhood in them. During this time, he often ministered to other inmates as well. This gave him a little more freedom of movement, though incarcerated. Prison was starting to harden Raymond. He and Antron both worked hard to transform themselves into an image of someone stronger, a little closer to invincible. Raymond's mother became sick during his time in the juvenile facility. He was able to visit her in the very last moments of her life, but I imagine it pained him that he couldn't be there for her, to help take care of her and accompany her to appointments prior to the final interaction. Corey did his best to keep his head down. He spent a lot of time in solitary confinement to keep himself protected. He tried to be on his very best behavior in order to get the best treatment possible, maybe even eligibility for parole. One of the guards by the name of Roberts looked out for Corey the best he could. Corey doesn't speak too much about his time in prison, but you can only imagine the things he saw and the attacks he endured that would make him seek comfort in solitary confinement. And even though they were managing, all five were desperate to go home. Kevin poured his heart out during his first parole hearing in the form of a poem. But the parole board stepped all over his hopes and dreams. Corey recalls going up to parole and having a similar experience. He said he didn't do it, and they told him not to come back. He stopped going to his parole hearings after a while because he figured there was no point. He was so frustrated that he was doing everything else right, only to be denied because he wouldn't grovel. And this would be a recurring theme. Whenever any of them were asked if they felt guilty or what they had done, if they felt any remorse, they all said time and time again that they didn't do it. And you can't feel remorse for something you did not do. In order to receive parole in a lot of cases, remorse is a key piece. There's something to be said about their integrity at this moment. Even though lying meant getting out of jail sooner, they all refused. They tried everything else to appease the board, but the board wanted remorse. If they were liars like everyone claimed, why lie now? Why keep up what people thought was just an act of innocence? They were all also required to take classes with other people who had committed sex crimes. They maintained that they did not belong there. They wanted to stop taking the classes altogether. All five of the boys continued their education while in prison. They all received high school diplomas. Raymond, Yusuf, and Kevin successfully got their college degrees. Antron and Corey started but were unable to finish because the program was suspended. Antron leaned into learning a trade. Yeah, believe it or not, not so long ago, they used to let people get degrees while they were in jail. But as you can imagine, some social programs in certain cities and certain states could be cut. New York had also turned its attention to cleaning up the streets. Subways were painted over just as quickly as graffiti went up. The jails were filling up with drug dealers and drug users who, quite frankly, needed treatment over prison. New York City was slowly on the decline in terms of violence. The days, months, and years would drag on until finally they were all eligible for conditional release. Raymond Santana was released in December 1995. Antron was released in September 1996. 
Yusuf Salam was released in March 1997, and Kevin Richardson was released in June of 1997. Life was different when they got out, thinking about everything that had happened from 1990 until they were released. Technology was slowly starting to advance. They had been in jail for the OJ trial, the Rodney King riots. They had missed their prom, getting a driver's license, voting, going to the bar when they turned 21, birthdays, holidays, and an opportunity at a normal life. Kevin's family insisted on coming to pick him up, and they enjoyed a long car ride home after years of being apart for so long. Yusuf remembers the day he was picked up when he was free to go home. He, his mother, and sister all went to IHOP. In his memoir, he recalls his food being a little burnt, but he didn't mind. His sister advocated for his order to be remade, and he was amazed because for a moment he almost forgot that he wasn't in prison anymore. Antron took the bus back home and took in all of the nature he saw on the long ride back. And when he arrived in his old neighborhood, everything felt unfamiliar to him. His father had come back around but was now battling kidney failure. But Antron still harbored resentment towards him. It wasn't enough that he was there now. He was sick and dying. Even up until he was dying, Antron couldn't forgive him. While back in the real world, they still encountered the occasional person who remembered them in the trial. The media frenzy had died down, but the stigma remained. They had registered as sex offenders and attended classes for sex offenders regularly. And it was difficult to find work due to their criminal backgrounds. How were any of them going to find their place in the world? While other boys like them were finished with college and starting careers, having children, getting married, they were in jail. They fell behind by traditional standards. Maybe in an alternate reality, there's a version of them that never went through this. Life outside of their cells would prove to have new internal challenges as well. The children in them had to die to survive prison. They had to grow up fast. The way they saw the world and themselves weighed on them. For Raymond, prison had hardened him, much like the others, but he was finding it increasingly more difficult to get back into the groove of things. He was angry, and anger was consuming him. He felt like he always had to look over his shoulder. The habits of prison were hard for him to shake. It was difficult to transition. Raymond slipped back into the system. After being accused of violating his parole, Raymond felt like his parole officer was itching to send him back to prison. And he was sent back to jail. There's so much pressure to provide for not only yourself, but your family, the family who took you in. And so when Raymond got out of jail, he resorted to selling drugs, the same corners that his father wanted to stay away from. He was arrested and sent back to jail and sentenced to three to seven years, but ended up getting it reduced to 18 to 48 months because of information that would come out a little later. Being that this was his second offense, he was sentenced to more time than if he was a first-time offender. And this is part of the cycle. We still see so many people falling victim to this today. People go to jail and can't adjust to life on the outside. They can't find work and they end up going back to crime to make ends meet. Studies show that nearly half of those released end up reincarcerated within a few years. Antron decided that he was going to find work and he was actually able to get a job. He left New York and went to Maryland where his cousin lived. He was able to use some of the skills he gained in prison to get a job working a trade. Although he went by his stepfather's last name, it was never actually legally changed. So he was able to get a job using his birth name, which is not the same as the name he entered the system through. He continued living under the radar. Until recently, he would only lend his voice and not face to any request to tell his story. Yusuf continued writing when he was released. He remembers how hard relationships were after getting out of jail. He was labeled a rapist. 
Those close to him knew he was innocent, but for women he was just meeting, not so much. It was hard knowing how people would perceive him. He would also struggle to keep a job and maintain long-lasting romantic relationships. He would find love and also his new career. Yusuf took up motivational speaking and decided to step out on faith and share his story. He continued to invest in himself and his education. And what about Corey? With no signs of parole in sight, Corey continued to make the best out of a bad situation. All the other boys had been let out at this point. They were now young men doing their best to adapt to society. But Corey was still incarcerated. But one small interaction was about to change everything for him and everyone else. While in prison, Corey was approached by another inmate by the name of Matthias Reyes. Corey was skeptical at first. Who is this guy and what does he want? Someone approaching you in prison isn't always positive. But it seemed like Matthias just wanted to talk. Actually, to be more specific, he wanted to apologize. Years prior, when Corey was at Rikers Island awaiting trial, they got into a fight in the TV room, him and Matthias. Corey thanked him for the random apology for an incident he hadn't thought about in years and wasn't worried about at all. Something like that seemed so small now that they were in prison. But this wasn't the only thing Matthias was harboring. He had some guilty feelings about something else. At that moment, he saw everything he had stolen from Corey, everything he had stolen from all the boys involved. And in this moment, he took it upon himself to make a wild confession. In 2001, word made it all the way to Assistant District Attorney Nancy Ryan. She interviewed Matthias, who had confessed to attacking Patricia Miley, all on his own. Matthias was going to spend most of his life in prison, if not the rest of it. He was a serial rapist and robber. Growing up, he was severely abused at a very young age. And then, in the absence of any sort of intervention, he slipped through the cracks and continued to become more and more violent. As a teenager, he had violated his own mother with a friend of his, attacked and robbed a woman when she was praying in church. He slammed her head on the floor so hard that she blacked out and he left her there naked. The only reason he didn't rape her is because she lied about having an STD. He had even tried to rape a woman in Central Park two days before Patricia Miley was attacked. There was no follow-up on this incident, even though the woman did go to the police and gave a detailed description of the perpetrator. Police didn't know it at the time, but this was their east side slasher they would soon be frantically searching for. He would continue to attack women until he was caught. He escalated beyond robbery and rape to murder. His MO was the same. He attacked women, often choking or gagging them. He would rape them repeatedly and then take what he could from them. He was known for being extraordinarily violent, tying women up, robbing them, and beating them. Sound familiar? Well, it should. One of his victims managed to escape and get help. This would lead to his overdue arrest on August 5th, 1989. He would claim the life of one woman, rape five, and attempt to rape two, in addition to an unknown amount of robberies. Matthias Reyes wanted to add one more woman to that list. He confessed that he and he alone attacked Patricia Miley that night in the park. He had been in prison for years now, but seeing Corey in jail aided him. All the evil he had done in this world, he felt like he had to say something. What's wild is that when he was taken into his custody, one of the same police officers who's working his case was involved in the Central Park Five case, and they never thought to compare the DNA or question him about his involvement, even though he was the perfect suspect. 
In his confession, he explained the following. He stalked Trisha for a little bit, and when he had his perfect moment to strike, he did. An unsuspecting Trisha, who jogged with her headphones in, was hit in the back of the head by him. He recalls that her body was completely stunned and that he dragged her into the bushes, where he proceeded to beat and rape her. He also explained that at one point she did try to run away, and that was the point in which he hit her with the rock. He untied her shoes and took her house key. He was hoping to get an address out of her so that he could go to her apartment and rob her, on top of everything else he had already done to her. He hit her so hard that the ring he wore left an imprint on her. Trisha did not relent, so he stole her music and left her there for dead. His version of the events lined up almost perfectly with the scene, especially considering the amount of time that had passed since the attack. There were also details that he mentioned that explained the scene of the crime and the police were able to verify. The confession made it even more clear that the statements of the five boys were coerced. Their version of events was nothing like Matthias's version of events, nor did they mention him in any of the retellings. He maintained that he acted alone and based on the nature of the attack, Trisha was consistent with other victims. And guess what? His DNA was compared to the samples found at the scene. And surprise, surprise, Matthias was a match. DNA is such a little thing physically, one of the smallest things actually, but it can be the difference between guilt and innocence. His confession, along with his DNA being a match, was more than enough to start a serious discussion about overturning the convictions of the five boys. Nancy went forward and interviewed police, other inmates, and anyone who could back up the claim that the five were innocent. There were no connections to the five and Reyes. There was no reason to believe they had crossed paths that night or nights prior. She interviewed and re-interviewed Raymond and Kevin. They did not know that Reyes had come forward. This time, they told their story free from coercion. They maintained that they did not rape Trisha. And my favorite part, that hair that was found on Kevin's underwear, the one they said resembled Trisha's, well, with new technology, they were able to appropriately compare it to Trisha's hair, and it was not a match. With this mountain of evidence on top of everything else, this would be more than enough to vacate the convictions handed down over a decade ago. Corey was released in 2002. Corey was released after over 12 years. At this point, he was 28 years old. All of this conversation about Matthias' confession was still pending. Corey couldn't believe that he came forward after all this time. He'd been in prison for his crime through all other milestones I mentioned with the previous four boys. In addition to Bill Clinton's presidency and the Monica Lewinsky scandal, all of the things happening in the world, 9-11, the rise of the internet. During this time, he also lost his girlfriend and father. His father was heartbroken by what happened to his son. He turned to alcohol for comfort, which ultimately led to his death. When Corey re-entered the world, his disability would add another obstacle to him re-entering society. Unfortunately, the world is not always as kind or accommodating. He picked up employment where he could to mostly do odd jobs. December 19, 2002, the lawyers all got together to plead their case. The families attended in place of the five. It was a no-brainer. The previous convictions were vacated, and there would be no need to go to trial again. The boys had a clean slate. Antron got a call from his cousin and told him the news after working all night. Someone came forward and confessed. He was stunned. Raymond got a call from his dad who told him the good news. He was shocked and a little bit in denial. There's no way. And for Raymond, if this news was true, he would be going home. 
His current charge was a longer sentence due to his previous offense, not to mention maybe he wouldn't have turned to crime if he wasn't listed as a sex offender. Yusuf's mother wore another iconic Yusuf is Innocent t-shirt. The world could finally see how right she was, that they were all right. Kevin remembers the love and warmth of his family during that moment. This was the best Christmas gift that they could receive. Raymond would make it out before Christmas too. He walked out the front door of the prison. He faced the media with pride, innocent then and innocent now. Many of the prosecutors involved in the case and the police maintained that they did nothing wrong. They were heavily dissatisfied with the investigation conducted by Nancy and her team. They were offended that they had not been invited to be involved in the process. There had been no remorse, only feelings of disgust. They doubled down on the original facts of the case and were extremely critical of the new evidence presented. There was no apology from any of them. There is no apology from Donald Trump or Patrick Buchanan. Even today, some people maintain that the boys were involved, even though we know that the hair found on Kevin's boxers did not match. The statements so clearly do not match each other, not to mention someone came forward and confessed to the crime. Some people still believe that the boys were somehow involved, that they were present, that they helped Matthias, but there's no evidence of that. Only imagination. The facts of the case override the feelings. Trisha also believes that she had multiple attackers even though she doesn't remember anything that happened that night, even though Matthias said he acted alone. In spite of the stigma, the exonerated five were able to continue on with their normal lives. Although the vacated charges meant the world, it did little to mend their current predicament as a result of the time they served. They made the decision to sue the city of New York for malicious prosecution, racial discrimination, and emotional distress. They were awarded a settlement of $41 million in 2014. This changed everything. Each person received $7 million, and Corey, who served the most time, received $12.2 million. Corey donated $190,000 of his settlement to the Innocence Project to help more people like himself. As a matter of fact, all five are heavily involved with the organization, including Yusuf, who now sits on the board. Although no amount of money can turn back the clock, it definitely helped them live a more fulfilling life. After the settlement was announced, Trisha made a statement. She mentioned that, I so wish the case hadn't been settled. She mentioned in a 2020 interview in 2019. I wish that it had gone to court because there's a lot of information that's now being released that I'm seeing for the first time. I support the work of law enforcement and prosecutors. They treated me with such dignity and respect. I always knew that there was at least one more person involved because there was unidentified DNA. So when I heard the news that there was an additional person found whose DNA matched, that wasn't a tremendous surprise. But when he said that he and he alone had done it, that's when some of the turmoil started. So let's assume for a moment Matthias Reyes did in fact not act alone and he lied and is covering up for some unknown person. There is no evidence that connects these young men to the crime, none whatsoever, other than the confessions which are wildly inconsistent and clearly coerced. So it puzzles me when people insist that they know that the boys were involved. Where is the evidence? So this is one story that has a happy ending. Sort of. Yusuf is actually running for city council as we speak. In fact, he just won the Democratic primary for the New York City's 9th City Council District. So this November, he'll be on the ballot. His path to office was paved by a Lifetime Achievement Award from President Obama, fathering 10 children and becoming a New York Times bestseller. In fact, his book, Better Not Bitter, was a must-read for this podcast episode. 
Antron also settled down and moved down south with his wife and six children. Raymond's doing well for himself also and is enjoying being a father. He also has his own clothing line and puts his creative eye to good use. The brand is called Park Madison NYC, and some of the merchandise is a nod to his experiences as a member of the Exonerated Five. He too continues speaking engagements and advocacy in the community. He is keeping his heart open to love and finding his person, even though things didn't work out with his former wife. Kevin Richardson is enjoying a quiet life with his wife and two children. You will see him continuing to advocate in the media because he routinely speaks about his experience and advocates for others. Corey Wise still lives in New York and fights to change the system that they all fell victim to. Like I already said, all of them are heavily involved in the Innocence Project. This organization strives to provide freedom to those previously labeled as guilty. Since 1992, they have helped give freedom to 245 people and counting. The Exonerated Five have done dozens of speaking engagements, and recently the TV show, When They See Us, was created to show the world their story. It wouldn't be until 2022 that Stephen Lopez's conviction was overturned, even though the rape charge was dropped and it was found that his confession was unconstitutional. Given all this new evidence and the fact that both his parents, who were present for his interrogation, did not speak English very well or at all to truly be present for their son. Steve would not be a part of the 2014 settlement, but his name has not been cleared. It is important that we say his name. He had four years taken from him as well. Maybe there will be some compensation in the future too. Who knows? The story of the Exonerated Five should serve as a cautionary tale. We've all heard stories about how black parents have to have the police talk with their children. And it is because of stories like these. Imagine how many Yusuf Salams, Antron McCrae's, Kevin Richardson's, Raymond Santana's, Corey Wise's, and Steven Lopez's are in prison today. And even though they were able to come out on top, the time they lost can never be replaced. And the one thing the group may never fully have is their peace of mind. In a recent Breakfast Club interview, Yusuf pulled out a stack of papers. While they were in jail, many of the parents received hate mail about their sons. Yusuf remembers stumbling across one of these letters, and it reads, quote, Just remember that even 20 to 30 years from now, some of us will never forget. And maybe the one time that you don't check your back is the one time that someone might just be there to say hello. Unquote. The work is never done. Until next time. This episode was written and researched by Jordan Howard, narrated and edited by Andre White. If you're a fan of the Redacted History Podcast, consider leaving a like, a review, and a subscription. It goes a super long way. And if you're interested in supporting us further, go subscribe to the Patreon, where you'll get behind-the-scenes access, early and commercial-free episodes, and an ability to connect with me even closer. I appreciate all the support as always.